This is the Brain Over Belly podcast, solving the puzzle of obesity with Dr. David Brown of Idaho BMI. Today we talk about food, what to eat, when to eat, and how to eat if you want to lose weight and keep it off for life. There's lots of aha moments for your brain to take in, so listen close until the end. Here's your host, Rick Dunn. So we learned in episode one that the key to solving the puzzle to obesity and having permanent weight loss success is reprogramming the brain. Correct, Dr. Brown? Yes. And then there was there was three pillars involved with that. And what are those three pillars again? Those three pillars are one, bariatric surgery. And again, we can talk more about that and why that is, but it's actually a very important key to it. So the first pillar is bariatric surgery. Number two, of course, is uh, food. Eating food uh, in a way that gets us into ketosis. And people have heard about ketosis, I'm sure. Um, And the third pillar is mindfulness, cognitive exercises, meditation being an example. Uh, Mindfulness practices that help facilitate this reprogramming of the brain process. So there's a lot there. Uh, We're going to dive in and focus today on food because I think uh, when people go through trying to lose weight, trying to get to be a better, better self, there's so much around food that people don't know what's right and what's wrong. So let's dive into it. What are we going to do with food when you bring somebody in? So the main three ideas that we work with people on are in order to reprogram the brain and to be successful at losing weight permanently, a person needs to change what they eat, they need to change when they eat, and how they eat. So people need to reprogram their brain when it comes to eating food. What does that mean exactly, and why does the brain need to be reprogrammed? Well, we all know that the food that we eat has an important impact and effect on our bodies. Right different organs and tissues of the body. Um, If we eat a lot of sugar, well, that's going to be harmful to the liver and to the pancreas and and muscle and a lot of different things. Uh, But the food that we eat also has a tremendous effect on our brain. And I like the analogy of a car, driving a car and the concept of cruise control. Just about every car nowadays has a cruise control. Well, you imagine driving a car and you're on a highway and you want to be driving 60 or 65 miles an hour and you put the car in cruise control. Yeah. That's great. But what about when you uh, are entering an area where you need to slow down, either intersections or a town? If that cruise control is set and you can't get the car out of cruise control, you're going to have problems. And so when we're talking about food and the brain, Um, You can think of the brain as being the computer or the device that is in cruise control. And it's one thing to be eating the wrong food, but if the brain is programmed to want those unhealthy foods and it essentially can't get out of the mode of pursuing those bad foods and processing it incorrectly, that becomes really the fundamental problem. In our last episode, Mona talked about going out to parties, going to different places, and there was things that she wanted to eat. There was things that she wanted to drink. And and Mona, who was the first patient that uh, you brought on this journey here with us in Brain Over Belly, 
she says she's looking forward to retraining her brain, so to speak, and and tackling that and not wanting to always eat a big piece of cake or uh, take an extra glass of wine or, or maybe take wine at all. Yeah, and I think that's the greatest power of this whole journey of reprogramming the brain. It's one thing to discipline oneself and, you know, it's all willpower. I'm not going to eat that. I'm not going to eat that much. The real power in this is changing what people want and what they crave. So by going through this process, it's no longer this nasty urge that you have. You don't want that anymore. Right. Um, People can get to the place where it becomes very easy. And one of the main reasons it becomes easy is because they are changing what they want and what sounds good and the influence of triggers in our environment. So tell us about ketosis. I know that's a part of this journey as well. What is ketosis exactly for those people that don't know? And why is that important? So almost everybody now has heard of the ketogenic diet. Right. The big picture view of it is the vast majority of people are burning sugar in their bodies as the primary fuel. There are hundreds of benefits in training our bodies or adapting our bodies to burning fat as the primary fuel. Fat is a cleaner fuel. Um, And there are many benefits that come when our bodies are burning fat as the primary fuel. Well, the fat that we burn, some of that is converted into what we call ketones. They're they're byproducts of processing fats. And it turns out those ketones uh, have tremendous benefits. They have many different effects in the body from being chemical messengers to activating certain processes in the body. And they have a tremendously healthy effect. Uh, It's also the most effective way for losing weight. Um, If you think about if a person has excess weight, it's because they have stored fat. Well, what better way to lose weight and to burn the fat than converting your body Uh, to using fat as its primary fuel. It's a win-win situation. So you're healthier, you're losing weight, you look better, you feel better. Exactly. Yeah. Is there any other benefits from going through ketosis? Well, in this topic of wanting to reprogram the brain, absolutely. Uh, When a person is in ketosis, having those ketones, those chemicals in your blood, has a pretty profound effect on the brain. And this condition... Uh, called neuroplasticity. It is being able to change the organization, function, and even the anatomy of a person's brain. Having ketones in our bodies does help us reprogram the brain. It makes the brain more malleable. Um, It also stabilizes the new brain networks that we are trying to create, or in other words, brain cells communicating with each other. We want to create new circuits in the brain and ketones help us do that. Sounds like you're building a robot. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot like electrical engineering. Not yeah. that I know a lot about electrical engineering, but it is that yeah. process really happening in the brain. How 
do you go about getting your patients into ketosis? And which part of the journey does that come in? Well, to be honest, I rarely use the word ketosis or ketogenic diet. I think it's distracting for people. They hear that, and it seems to be everywhere now. And so people get the impression that they need to go out and buy cookbooks and do things like fat bombs, and it's that it's some complicated thing, and it's really not. I'm a big believer in the principle of simplicity. Simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. I think that was Leonardo da Vinci who said that. But it's certainly true in this. And so I don't even talk about ketosis usually. Mm-hmm. How do I get them there? Again, those three ideas of changing what a person eats, when they eat, and how they eat. And just focusing on those things and making it as simple as possible, um, these people, their bodies will go into this thing called ketosis where they're burning fat as the primary fuel. But one of the fundamental parts of that is simply removing, in general, carbohydrates and processed foods from our diet. And so we talked about the different parts. When we're talking about food, there's all these different things we have to think about. Uh, let's simplify part of this right now. What foods can we eat or what foods can't we eat? What are we looking at? Okay, so one way to look at it is, well, what do we, we need to remove from the diet? And, right. Um, so carbohydrates in general, cereals, granola, bread, pasta, rice, potatoes, sweet potatoes, sugar, and then any processed foods. Those are foods we want to move away from. As far as what we want to eat, I have my patients um, eat meat, cheese, eggs, avocado, nuts, olives, and green leafy vegetables. I, I encourage my patients to prioritize meat and eggs in their diet. Um, those foods are very nutrient-dense. They provide a lot of nutrition very efficiently, and those foods, because of their effect on the brain, essentially are turning off appetite and cravings and hunger pains. On the other end of the spectrum, you know, carbohydrates, processed carbs, processed foods, they really don't deliver much in the way of nutrition, yet they turn on uh, appetite, cravings, and hunger pains. Gotcha. When you have bariatric surgery, 80% of your stomach is removed? Am I pretty close to accurate with that? Well... There are two operations that I do, and it's pretty standard for bariatric programs across the country. I do the sleeve gastrectomy Uh and the gastric bypass. For me, by far, most often I do the sleeve gastrectomy. And in that operation, yes, we are removing about 80% of the stomach. And what's left of the stomach is in the shape of a tube or a shirt sleeve, which is where the name comes from. Uh, The gastric bypass, which I do a little less often, it's a little more complicated, and we, we do change the anatomy of the stomach. We create what's called a gastric pouch, and then we reroute the intestines. Um, so it's a little more complicated. So with that, what you put in that 20% that's left is pretty crucial, I'm guessing, right? Absolutely. Real estate in the stomach after surgery is, is a precious commodity, and so we need to make it count. And so, yes, I want my patients to eat 
nutrient-dense foods like meat and eggs. And so is that why you focus on the food so much before going through the surgery, I would assume? it's They've got to get into that place to where they're already putting healthy food into their body? Yeah, I think it makes sense. There's a lot that people need to change after surgery, and it can be overwhelming. And I think uh, for most people, it makes sense to start on food first, sort right. of as an introduction. And that's the that's what people have spent the most time thinking about is what's the right food to eat. And so we start there, and then we add the idea of only eating when you're hungry. Right. And that's, so that's the second idea is listening to our bodies – and if we're not hungry, don't eat. And we've been taught for generations now that we need to be eating three square meal meals a day or six small meals a day. And that's just, it's just wrong. Or the old, uh, you know, you, you remember hearing mom say you better clean off that plate. It's If you're full, maybe it's better to just walk away from the plate, right? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. How, we've talked about what we're supposed to be eating, specifically... How do you train somebody to eat? Well, I don't know if training is the right word, but you know, I'm talking about the chewing or, or when you're supposed to eat. I mean, you've kind of touched on some of that a little bit, but be a little more specific with that. Sure. So most of my patients get to a point, usually after surgery, where they eat once a day. And, and that's healthy for you? That's okay? Absolutely. You, okay. Assuming when we eat, we're eating those nutrient-dense foods. But yes, I treat my patients a very specific sort of a mechanical way of eating. The reason for doing that is we want to reprogram the brain and the, the experience of eating is a prime time to be doing that. So I teach my patients to chew every bite 20 to 40 times and to count. That sounds like a lot to me. <laughs> it's an investment of time and energy for sure. Uh, and then they take a timed one-minute break between swallowing one bite and putting the next bite in their mouth. Well, no wonder they only eat one meal a day. Right. <laughs> I'm kidding. You know I'm kidding, doctor. Well, initially everybody believes that the reason for doing this is has something to do with the texture of the food or the passage of time, and it doesn't really. Yeah. The reason is uh, the effect of that counting and the timing of the break in the brain. There's a test. It's a sophisticated brain scan. It's called a functional MRI. Well, a functional MRI measures activity levels in different parts of the brain. And if you do this brain scan on the brains of a 1,000 people who struggle with weight and obesity and you compare their brains to the brains of a thousand people who don't have that struggle, you find very distinct and consistent differences. And I think a reasonable way to summarize those differences is in the brains of people who struggle with weight and obesity, think of two centers of the brain that are out of balance as far as activity levels. One is too active, the other is not active enough. Well, when we eat, that counting and the timing those two things together increase activity in what's called the prefrontal cortex of the brain. And you can think of that area of the brain as the command center. And we want to increase activity in that part of the brain and engage it directly in the process of eating. So that's what that is all about. 
how often do you talk to your patients about this kind of stuff, specifically food? When they come in, and how often do you see your patients? Is it once a month, once every couple of weeks? Yes, we see our patients once a month before surgery and once a month after surgery for at least a year. After that, okay. it really depends on how people are doing. Right. And then when it comes to food, your patient comes in, do you talk to them uh, once every six months about that, or how often do you do that with them? Every single time I see them. Every time. Yeah. So you go over the same exact things, make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. There's a lot of time and energy put into, uh, from from all sides, uh, from their side and from your side with this. Right, right. And we try to switch it up and talk about the different reasons and the different aspects of uh, all of this and try to keep it interesting and, and increase people's understanding of what they're doing and why they are experiencing what they're experiencing. People have to listen to their bodies. What does that mean exactly? So, you know, as we just discussed, people should listen to their bodies and only eat when they're hungry. If we eat on a schedule, we are not listening to our body. And the truth is, a person's body is absolutely genius. It's smarter than any physician or any expert on the planet. So that's the first way in which we listen to our bodies. But when we eat, we also need to be listening to our bodies. So in addition to counting as people chew and timing the break between bites, I tell uh, people to listen to their bodies. In other words, turn off the TV, the computer, and really spend time focusing inward and listening to the different sensory signals that they will uh, experience as they are eating. Because as we talked about in the first episode, there is this detachment, this disorientation we have from the normal, healthy sensory feedback system in the body. So really what we are doing is reorienting and reattaching to the sensory system in our bodies. And that's uh, really how we reprogram the brain. So mindful eating, people have heard that. When we eat, we want to listen to those signals. Or when people eat right now, is it that our brains are trained to, because most of the time people wake up and then they eat breakfast at the exact same time every morning. They eat lunch at the same time every day and dinner. And, and that's, we've trained ourselves to do that. And that's what we're trying to get away from then? Absolutely. Yeah, we need to not get on a schedule. Right. And people are often surprised uh, they'll tell me I'm not e- really eating much or I'm not eating very frequently, yet my energy level is off the charts. With only one meal a day. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> it's crazy. Why do we need to reprogram the brain? Why is that so important? Well, um, there's a reason that 42% of Americans are obese. And it's n- it is not that they don't have willpower or that they're weak people. Um, for about 40 years now, uh, the food industry has, has been changed uh, dramatically. And there's a lot of effort, money, and time that goes into actually engineering foods. And there are foods today and for the last 40 years that some, including me, would call hyper-palatable foods. They're processed, they're engineered very carefully. And they're engineered um, in a very specific way to create a certain neurochemistry in the brain. Uh, It's referred to as the bliss point, and we can all relate to this. You know, 
eating a mile high mud pie or eating something that we love and that feeling that oh, it gives yeah. us. That's the yeah. bliss point. Chocolate bar. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, it's no accident. And specifically, it's a, it's a balance of salt, sugar, and fat. And uh, when that is consumed, it creates this positive, pleasant sensation. Well, there's all kinds of uh, techniques in food engineering, things called power law distribution, uh, all kinds of science that goes into it with the goal being to sell more product. We've all heard that commercial, I bet you can't just eat one. Right. Well, that's precisely what it's designed to do, to keep us eating. Uh, for example, jalapeno, well, there's a, there's a chip, a type of chips that we're all familiar with, and it's a spicy jalapeno flavor. Uh-huh. The food company uh, knows that if they make every 17th chip a little extra spicy, we eat more. It's, what? It's human psychology and brain function. Uh, they've discovered that. And so there's all kinds of engineering that goes into the foods in the modern food uh, market that are not just influencing us in the moment as far as giving us that bliss point, but if we go down that path repetitively enough, it affects brain mapping and brain circuitry in a way that it's back to that that cruise control idea that it becomes almost automated in us. And then we just want to eat those types of foods and we're stuck in this mode where our, that's what we're eating and our body is processing it in a very unhealthy way. I always thought they were just making something that tastes good. Well, look at this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm learning a lot today. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to learn about. That obviously doesn't sound good for us adults who are overweight. Uh, what's that doing to our kids, our children? I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, it's doing a lot to our children. If you go back to the counting and the timing, you know, when we're eating in those two centers in the brain, one is too active, the other area of the brain is not active enough. Well, it turns out that in children, as the brain develops, that area of the brain, it's called the limbic system, that develops first. It's not until age 22, 23, that the second center of the brain that we're talking about, the prefrontal cortex, that develops and matures much later. So as our children are eating these processed, engineered foods, those foods are impacting very dramatically the development and programming of our children. And sometimes you don't see the result of that influence until they're out of adolescence. So in the mid-20s or 30s, they're gaining weight and they don't know why. And it really has to do with that cruise control that's been developed and programmed into the brain. They're not a lost cause. I mean, they can still go through this process and retrain that brain and, and be on a, a good track again. But Absolutely. It, it's difficult. Yes. Okay, we've talked about what to eat, how to eat it, what's right, what's wrong, when do we get to drink something, <laughs> and what do we drink? Liquids. Well, water is very important, and I tell folks to cut out soda and fruit juices. Fruit juices, by the way, are really no different than a sweetened soda. So no soda, no fruit juices, but a person needs to drink about two liters of water every day, which is about 64 ounces. Now I teach uh, my patients to drink the water slowly and consistently between meals and to not drink anything with meals. 
And there are many reasons for that. One, as you mentioned, real estate or the space in the stomach after surgery is very limited. And so when we eat a meal, we want to be eating food. Um, But if we drink liquids with a meal, the liquids essentially wash the food through the stomach. The stomach empties faster and we're hungry sooner. If we don't drink anything with a meal, the food actually stays in the stomach longer and we're satisfied longer. So that's one big reason. But it's interesting to know that 70% of adults are chronically dehydrated. And that chronic dehydration has some pretty powerful negative effects. It tends to increase anxiety um, and stress. And it also alters hormones in a way that promotes appetite and weight gain. So drinking water is actually very important. And uh, what I teach my patients is to just always have a water bottle with you. And every three to five minutes, you just take a small drink. So the food, the water, all of this makes a lot of sense. Why is it still hard for somebody to sit down and say, okay, I'm going to do this? Why is it difficult? Great question. It is difficult. It's not easy. The goal is, of course, for it to eventually become easy, and that does happen. Uh, What I find with almost everybody is we have been taught all of our lives to be counting calories or to be obsessed with the number on the scale and to use many different metrics or measures for our diet that are outside of ourselves. People weigh food or even a visual idea of what I'm going to be eating. And it's very important through this process that people let go of that way of thinking and trust those sensory signals that our bodies will send to us. I have some uh, patients that are engineers and they will bring in graphs and all <laughs> kinds of... <laughs> they're trying to prove you wrong, huh? <laughs> well, they're, they're just meticulous and they're detail-oriented and they're used to thinking this way. And they'll yeah. bring these, this paperwork in and every time they, they will eventually become frustrated because it works for a while and then it stops working. Right. And the point is that's when I tell them, look, you need to let go of the numbers and things outside go inside You know, as long as the pillars are there, what we're eating, when, and how we're eating, those types of things, the key is to become a master at listening to the signals that our bodies will send us. And in order to do that effectively, we have to eventually let go of everything outside. And would you say, like, the beginning is the most difficult time to do that? Probably. Uh, This is, what, about an 18-month process? Yes. Yeah. It's 18 months. And again, I think we try to ease people into it first by talking about what they eat. And that seems most natural for people. But it's usually after surgery that we get into this concept that, look, you need to let go of everything outside. Uh, You know, how many calories you're eating, how many grams of protein, how many grams of carbs, and just eat the right foods. And as long as people do that, they're going to be getting the right uh, macronutrients, in other words, fats and and proteins. Nature's taken care of it. We need to let go of that type of obsessive thinking. Throw the scale away, listen to your body, eat the right foods, drink water all the time except for when it's time to eat. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and I wouldn't necessarily throw the scale away. I understand that, but we just don't want to worry too much about it because all of those things eventually become a distraction and they will pull us into that game of, am I failing? Or am I succeeding? And that is always going to 
be distracting and lead us to thoughts and feelings of guilt and shame. I see that with uh, my girlfriend, is, and she's not overweight, but she feels like she'd like to drop a few pounds. I think she gets on the scale three times a day. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and I'm like, sweetie, you, you know, you, you look great. You don't need to be, that's not going to help you out at all. Well, some people remember John McEnroe, the yeah. tennis player. Yeah. And uh, in sports, there are two mindsets. One is task orientation. The other is outcome orientation. John McEnroe was clearly the latter. He was focused all the time on whether he was going to win or lose. And research has shown that having that mindset increases anxiety and stress, and it, it, it uh, affects performance negatively. If we focus on tasks instead... Um, huh. We're actually more successful. It's an, a more enjoyable experience, and we don't have the ups and downs and the emotions uh, that are so erratic. Well, he seemed like such a level-headed guy. I don't <laughs> <laughs> he is now. He, is he wasn't now. then. He's aged a little bit. So what is the ultimate reward with this program? I want to help people get to a place where they are in total control. In other words, they don't feel tempted by any foods and they don't feel deprived as if they're missing out on anything. And they truly are in control of their health, their weight, and the worry and the stress of that challenge is just out of their lives. And they can move on and use the experience to do whatever it is they are on the planet to do. We've already got... um Mona has started this process, and we're going to be introducing everyone to um, at least one more person here soon. Who knows? Maybe two? Did you want to speak on that, or are we going to hold off a little bit and surprise people? Sure. I, I'm just uh, I'm excited to have uh, these folks participate. They're great people, and uh, I know that they'll be successful, and I think it will be helpful for people to hear their experience and to walk through this with them. Yeah, because they're like us. They live here in the Boise area. Uh, they struggle with weight. They go through the same issues that a lot of us go through. So listening to um, the beginning of Mona's journey, has uh, that was a lot of fun. And I'm really excited to see where she goes with this. And I'm really excited to see where the other patients go. I'm excited to see a lot of people listening to this podcast get healthier and retrain their brains and get to a place to where they feel good about who they are. Again, I know I say this all the time, but I think you're doing God's work, Dr. Brown, and I really appreciate what you do. It's cool stuff. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it.